Oh yeah, you betcha. We watched Fargo. We are the film fellas. We watch random movies that you love, hate, or have never heard of, and then we talk about them. I'm Greg, and despite these recent allegations, Mad Max Fury Road is not Caleb's favorite film. I've been swindled. <laughs> I'm Nick, and I'm eating cheese. I'm Caleb, keeper of this important tidbit. In the 1999 film Tarzan, Rosie O'Donnell's character Turk has a line that goes, I feel something happening here. And that starts at the 42 minute and 42 second mark of the film. And now, dear listener, you are keeper of that important tidbit too. (laughs) (laughs) True. I'm Robbie, and I've been playing in the rain. (laughs) Let's get into it. Like I said, we are the film fellas. This week we watched Fargo. This was Robbie's pick. Robbie, tell us a little bit about this movie. All right. So Fargo is a 1996 film by the Coen brothers who written and directed it. And it stars William H. Macy, Francis McDormand, Steve Buscemi, and several other great actors in what was a surprisingly great film for me. I'm very happy I picked it. Excellent. Let's start off with our one sentence summary. Robbie, feel free to pick the order. All right. Let's go with Caleb first, and then we'll go in the normal picking order for our movies. All right. My one sentence summary is sort of my feelings about the movie as I went through. You start the movie thinking, there's no way this is based off of a true story. Then you watch the movie and think, well, no, it might be possible that it's a true story. And then you do a little bit of research and find that it is not a true story. Cohen Brothers, what a roller coaster you took me on. <laughs> <laughs> A homie homicide caper featuring hapless hooligans haranguing a harried police chief headed for hijinks in a tan sierra. Bravo. Bravo. Yeah. Ooh, wow. All right. Tan sierra. My one sentence summary is a big guy and a funny looking fella kidnap William H. Macy's wife on his behest while a pregnant cop is hot on their tails. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the first actual summary. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have one. Well, yeah. To come off that one. <clears throat> Mine is, yeah, the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that would also work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, Lex, let's get into our plot synopsis where we're going to go down the plot one by one, try to remember what happened in this movie in chronological order, and see how we can get through it. Spoilers ahead, people. This movie came out in 1996, but if you haven't seen it, now would be a great time to skip ahead. The uh, timestamps for our synopsis will be in the description of whatever podcasting tool you're listening to. So to start off, we open up and we're in a nightclub and you see this guy walking around. He looks really nervous. He looks like he doesn't really belong. And he walks over to this table where Steve Buscemi and this guy, Gare, is sitting at this table and they're just staring him down. And he sits down. He's like, all right, so I didn't want to meet you here, but I guess we're going to meet here. And they're like, do you have the money? And he's like, well, no, no, I'm going to give you half now, half when the ransom's paid. So this guy's trying to hire them for some sort of nefarious plot. And they're not exactly playing along with him. He's obviously kind of sketchy. And these guys are also kind of in the dark. So it's like, all right, we'll take care of it later. You know, make sure that it 
that you pay out well. And then we just follow this guy as he goes back home and you find out that he's a car salesman. He's not a good car salesman. He's a bad one. And also he has a heavy debt. So he's making breakfast for his family and you see his wife and you see his son. They seem like they have this really nice upper middle class lifestyle. And uh, you realize that, oh, he wants to have his wife kidnapped for the ransom money to pay off these cars because he's currently about to get caught for doing some criminal activity. Fellas. So part of this plan was that they were also going to get a car because William H. Macy is a car salesman. So he steals them a car and gives it to them. So they're driving from where they met in Fargo down to Minneapolis. Yes, Twin Cities. Down to Minneapolis, where William H. Macy lives to kidnap his wife. And when they get there, she's watching TV all by herself during the day because his son is at school and he's off at work. And this guy smashes in the window with the crowbar and she freaks out and starts screaming. And then the other dude walks in the front door and they chase her all up into the upstairs bathroom where she locks herself in and they bang on the door and try to get out. And she tries to call the police and they yank the phone away from the cord. And it looks like she jumped out the window and they're like, fuck, we got to go get her quick. She ran away. And the... One of the guys stays behind and sees that she's actually hidden behind the shower curtain and they grab her up and they put her in the car and fellas. So then we get Carl and Gare going on that little ride and there Sierra. It's going fine. There's a lot of smoke. Apparently Gare breathes. Like he just keeps a cigarette in his mouth while he like plays with his hands, does whatever. I don't know how people do that. Anyway, they're driving. All of a sudden the cop behind them starts going, woo, 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 woo. And he's like, ah, Carl, Steve Buscemi is just like, ah, I didn't put the tags on the license. Ah, oh, what a bummer. The cop comes up, the wife's in the back. She's, they're like, hey, keep quiet or I'll shoot you. Bing, bang. They don't actually do that. Anyway, she is nice and quiet. The cop comes. Carl doesn't have, um, doesn't have the tags. So he tries to bribe the cop. The cop don't give a shit. So the cop goes, I'm going to have you step out of the car. All of a sudden, Garrett looks at him, grabs him, pulls him in, boom, one to the head. Dead. Amazing blood effect. But while Steve Buscemi is trying to bring the body away to hide the body, because that's what you do, another car goes by. And it's two people, probably in their 20s, probably just came back from some sort of hockey game because it's Minnesota. They see the Steve Buscemi holding the cop and he just goes, ah, shit. They start driving. There's a high speed chase. Garrett turns the car around. <laughs> Apparently, the people in front of Gare, the people who saw him, the hockey people from Minnesota, they end up crashing. And Gare just pulls the car over. He's a very quiet guy. Looks at them. The guy gets out. He's in his full uniform. Probably the Canucks. I don't really know. He starts running. Gare shoots him in the back. And then Gare looks in the car. His girlfriend is there. Totally incapacitated, but looks at Gare. And he just shoots her point blank. And then it goes over. And uh, fellas. That is the moment that we get introduced to Marge Gunderson, a crackwick detective over in Brainerd, next to where this triple homicide took place. And she gets the call that there's some bodies found on the highway, and uh, her adorable husband, Norm, makes her some eggs before she leaves in the morning. And they get out to the highway, and already she's on the case. She's like, okay, here's what happened. She's looking at all the evidence, and she figures out that cop pulls someone over, they ice the cop and then two people come by and see it and they go and they're going the other way. She gets all the details pretty much figured out, but she doesn't know why or where they went. And she's got some more detective work to do. So, so she goes back to the police station, has some lunch with Norm. And we find that Norm's an artist who uh, paints geese. He's got this, uh, this really cute little geese painting business going on. Waterfowl. Yeah. Yeah. Waterfowl in general. And 
through Marge's detective work, they find out that they're looking for a tan Sierra, which is the car that Carl and Gare were driving because that is what was in the police officer's ledger. So he stopped the car, said, I'm, I'm looking at a tan Sierra, 2.18 a.m. And so they start looking for this tan Sierra. Meanwhile... The license plate uh, DLR. We're looking for this tan Sierra with a license plate DLR, like maybe a dealer license plate, perhaps. Ooh. Mm, yes. Meanwhile, Jerry is freaking out because this whole thing isn't necessarily going as planned, and he hasn't heard from Carl or Gare in quite some time, and he needs to call his father-in-law, Wade, who has the money that's going to make this whole thing work. So he has to convince Wade and Wade's business partner to give him the money so he can give the criminals the money so everyone can have money except for Wade, who has less money. That's how giving stuff works but wade being a businessman thinks like oh no it's my money i'm going to deal with this the way i want and and uh, i'm going to be the one talking to the people and handing things over and jerry's like oh no you don't want to do that uh, we don't need any police and uh, i'll talk to them all by myself and he said no gotta, cops no cops no cops we gotta we gotta play ball with them fellas Jerry is freaking out because of all this stuff going on and it's not the way he planned it. So he's like, okay, I've got to take control of this. And so he's like, all right, so I'm going to call them and I'm just going to have them talk with me and we'll try and get it done. And I'll do it even without my father-in-law knowing it. And so he tries to call them and they're like bumbling around and we cut back over to the crooks. And instead of being like, you know, all suave or making sure that everything's locked down and being all professional, they're out, they're bar hopping, they're bringing back hookers to the apartment. They're messing around, flashing money everywhere. So people keep seeing them, these two funny looking guys. And so Marge is looking around and she's trying to find out, like, has anybody seen anybody weird coming out of this bar? Because they saw Tan Sierra and the bar people are like, well, no, he's, you know, there was a guy there and he was really funny looking. And she's like, can you be more specific? And they're like, nah, just funny looking. And that carries on to every single person that she meets says that he's funny looking and can't get any more description. So she's like, okay, I got the guy's funny looking. If I see a funny looking guy, I'm going to talk to him. And then they're keep- looking in a general way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in a general way, you know, generally funny looking. So we pop around and she, you just see her going through her normal day. She's going out to like, uh, you know, cheap burger joints with her husband and talking together and having kind of a warm conversation. But she seems to be like very capable at what she's doing, even though everyone's personalities seem to be on the surface, very kind of friendly and cheery. She realizes how some of these people aren't exactly being truthful and are hiding things. Case in point, she gets a phone call from someone that she hasn't seen in years, one of her old schoolmates. And apparently one of their old friends, a mutual friend of theirs, was his wife and she just died. And he just wants to meet her to talk. And so she's like, "Okay, you know what? I'm going to go meet this guy and, you know, talk about what's going on. So she decides that uh, she's going to go try and talk with him and see what's going on. And uh, he starts hitting on her really awkwardly and she gets up to leave and finds out that actually he is crazy. And uh, the girl is still alive and never was married to him. And he was just kind of using that so he could go find her. And so she thinks to herself, she's like, wow, I guess, you know, people are really kind of hiding things. And some of these people are really good at it. Fellas. So unmentioned so far, Marge Gunderson is very pregnant. Not really relevant, but a fun little character quirk. So she's going around doing her police work. She goes down to Jerry Lundegaard and asks him questions, and he's freaking out. And he's like, hey, when was the last time you did the count on your car lot? And he's like, "Uh, well, no, 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 they're all fine. We did the count. He's like, yeah, but how do you know? And he's like, fine, I'll go do the the count right now. And she's like, right now? Goodness gracious. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Carl and Gare call up Jerry to set up the drop and Wade, the father-in-law, overhears the call and just takes off to go drop the money himself. And Jerry's like, no, no, we got to know. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. And so they set up this, <laughs> they set up the drop on the top of this parking structure and Wade drives up and Steve Buscemi's there and he's like, where's Jerry? And he's like, here's your money, you son of a bitch. Give me back my daughter. And he's like, no, fuck you. Give me, we only said we were only going to talk to Jerry. And there's a kerfuffle and they both shoot each other and Steve Buscemi gets shot through the cheek and Wade gets shot to death. So he grabs the money and Steve Buscemi takes off with his cheek bleeding everywhere. Fellas. Jerry later shows up after Steve has left the area and he finds his father-in-law and he goes, oh, that's not good. So he just sort of goes on the run. Anyway, Steve and or Carl. I just like Can you say Steve. that more Minnesotan? Oh, oh, geez, that's not good. You betcha. And he goes on the run. Anyway, now Steve here, a.k.a. Carl, <laughs> he goes back to Gare's place and he realizes, whoa, Jerry got way more than $80,000. This is like quite a bit of money. So he takes out 80,000 and he buries the rest on the side of the road by a little fence, makes a little mark on it. He's bleeding like crazy, by the way, because that face wound was really cool. He goes over to where Gare has Jean. She's big dead because Gare is uh, sort of sketchy and apparently she was shrieking. So he just sort of. Anyway, they have a little argument over who gets to keep the Sierra, which look how much money they have. It's very irrelevant, but Gare's a weird guy. So he goes over and full-on American psychos Steve with a with an axe. And then out of nowhere, Marge shows up in fellas. So Marge is hot on the case. She's trolling around looking for our tan Sierra. And then, bam, she sees it. She gets her, her pistol out and she goes and she hears a noise in the back of the shed. And she sees Gare putting Steve Buscemi in a wood chipper and... He's trying to shove the last of his leg because apparently he's got real knobby knees that the wood chipper's having a lot of trouble with. And as he's trying to shove his leg in, and Marge is trying to get her, his attention, like, hey, police. And Gare sees it, and he just takes off running like a, like a scared little puppy. And Marge fires a warning shot, I presume. And then the second shot, bam, just clips him in the leg. A perfect incapacitation shot. And she gets Gare into the back of her car, all by herself, by the way. While very pregnant. pregnant. <laughs> while very pregnant. So, yeah, Marge for the win. And she says, like, and what was it all for? Just a little bit of money. There's a lot more to life than just a little bit of money. You know that? I just don't understand. And then we sort of fade out. And then we fade back in. And we see that a couple of police officers have caught Jerry hold out at this, uh, this hotel and they take him kicking and screaming, and we have no idea what happened to his son. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about Jerry's son. What, what even is his name? He gets so sidelined in this. Scotty. Movie. Scotty. Oh, I didn't Scotty, even man. He's got a name. <laughs> Jerry didn't even think of Scotty. He didn't. No, man, he shouldn't have done bad in his grades or else he could go to hockey practice. Yeah, well, he's, he's a C student. That's passing. Also, apparently he really likes the accordion. Yeah, I was like, what? This guy has an accordion and he's doing some things with his friends that aren't cool. Like, look, he has an accordion. An accordion related? I think he doesn't go. He, <laughs> I think he has friends. <laughs> well, up in the north, Polka's real big. Is it now? You betcha. Oh, you betcha. <laughs> Listener, this is going to be the whole. This is going to be the whole episode. So every time I do something, I'm just going to go, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah.
You're Which down two. Do you think has the worst Minnesotan accent? Well, I haven't heard Robbie's yet, so I'm gonna say yeah, Robbie. That would be me. Mm. <laughs> Who doesn't even go for the attempt? Respect, Robbie. We're gonna get some uh, some strongly worded emails from our Minnesotan listeners. <laughs> when Mike showed up, I've never seen an Asian guy you do a Minnesota accent, and it yeah. really threw me off. <laughs> and that'll happen if you live any place long enough. Mm-hmm. Let me see. What of Mike? That was like red herring the scene. Am I right? When he starts crying and then goes. I'm so lonely. <laughs> I started laughing even though like... Oh, I was sad at that point. I was. I can't remember who that is. I think I was pretty pathetic. Uh, Mike is the guy that calls up Marge uh, for a very awkward lunch. The old school chum oh, that you mentioned oh, in the intro yeah. that didn't go anywhere. Yeah. yeah. That guy. Some of their accents okay. were like so thick. When she kept saying night crawlers, I thought she was saying crawlers and she had them in a bag. So I'm like, oh, they're going to be like little donuts. And he opens them like, <laughs> oh, those are worms. And I'm like, oh, night crawlers. Like he literally meant worms. He's going ice fishing after lunch. <laughs> Get some crawlers. And Tim Hortons. I don't know how to say it. Tim Hortons in Minnesota. You mean English? Tim Hortons. <laughs> Tim Hortons. Oh, you betcha. <laughs> go roll up the rim at Tim Hortons. You betcha. To be fair, Nick, I also fair. thought Nightcrawlers were donuts or some sort of pastry by how they were talking about them. It just he seemed like go, a, He just says, I better go get them for Norm. Yeah. It was like, oh, you know, Norm likes his pastries. So this movie looks a lot older than it is. Mm-hmm. Like it's 1996, but it like... It looks like 1987. Yes. Like, it's um, good filmmaking. <laughs> it's, it it's really good. In that time? Yeah. Okay. Because also the camera is just like really grainy. Like at one point when um Larry or Jared, not Larry, Jerry, <laughs> Jerry's talking to Wade in his office with um Wade's um accountant. And every time it goes back to Jerry on the left side of the screen, the white background kept getting pixelated in the same pattern. I don't I I, I changed like on my screen to my phone just to check if it was the same thing, and it was. I'm like, is it? Are they using like older cameras than they had back in that 1997? Uh, it was a l- kind of low budget, so they probably had a, a cheaper film stock with a wider grain. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they achieved their goal, right? This seems like it was a pretty successful movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It looks great. And there's a and show as well now, right? Yeah. It's got like four seasons. A <laughs> legitimate television show. Yeah. yeah a le- show. <laughs> yeah, this, m- this movie made a show of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I see no distinction. So when I chose this movie, it was because I hadn't watched it, but I'd seen a lot of little things about it. I'd heard like, you know, oh, this is good, but it's kind of quirky. And I just never got around to watching it. And I really enjoyed it. I thought that the writing was great. The acting was impeccable. But the most important part to it, I think, was just all the subtext in the cinematography and in how things were structured. So that I think it's very important that the film drives that home because the ongoing message that things are not exactly what they may seem on the surface and they may be better and or worse depending because there's a lot that's focused on like marge's family versus jerry's family and how they react with one another and how they present themselves to other people what other people see them as what would you guys say is like the biggest scene for you that exemplified that theme of the movie well i don't know about scene but what you're talking about, the cinematography really shows that off is every time 
Marge and Norm are in a scene together, they're always in a two shot. They're always framed together. Even the scene where they're having breakfast and she gets up to leave and the camera pans over and they're still in a two shot, even though she has crossed over him and gone outside and it just sits on him at the table while her car doesn't start. (laughs) Whereas with Jerry and his wife, she'll be out of focus or they'll do cross cutting one shots back and forth so that they're not really as connected, but Marge and Norm connected forever. They're in Mm -hmm. love. They're great. Two shots. They're really cute together. I gotta say that determination from Norm, like I'll make you some eggs. And Marge is like, no, you can still sleep. It's, it's still early. Like, no, you gotta get going. I'll make you some eggs. Like from that moment. Yeah. You gotta (laughs) eat. Like from that moment on, I was just team Norman Marge. Right. (laughs) Like it's a great ship. It really is. It's, Something about it. It just sends you like, okay, from now on, I everything else is irrelevant. I'm on team Norman Marge. Yeah. They are so cute together. Like when they had Arby's for lunch. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's like, your painting will do fine. And he goes and gives her a hug. And then he's, she's like, oh, you just got Arby's all over me. I'm like, oh, you cute little rascal. <laughs> and you then can't. in the end, when he's like, I only got the $3 stamp in the competition or three cent stamp. And she just like congratulates him and like looks on the glass half full kind of side. Like when, when stamp prices go up, they're going to need three cent stamps. And it's just, they're so cute. The scene that really cinched it for me is having them together talking at the very end. The last words of the film are just something that seems innocuous, doesn't seem part of the plot at all, but it drives home what the message was, which is that these two are building a family and it's healthy. This is a healthy, loving relationship. Juxtaposed with how we find Jerry in that hotel, bawling his eyes out, screaming as he's getting handcuffed. We have no clue where his son is and we know his wife is dead. The fact that those two scenes are just back to back just drives it home that even though this was supposed to be, you know, they only ate out at fancy dinners, they had all this money, they're so successful, everyone sees them as like, oh, you know, they're great at what they do. That's not true. It's a veneer. Whereas with them, they're eating out at low budget meals. They're getting fast food. You know, she's dealing with all this pressure that's coming to her and she's just fighting through it. And they have very innocuous, normal, mundane problems that they're working through. And all it does is endear you more toward these two rather than all the glitz and everything of all this money being spent over on this one side. Yeah, I love the scenes where they're just having lunch together and there's still police work going on. And Norm is, he's not really paying attention. He's just there to be there with his wife because they love each other. He's off looking at something else or, you know, doing his own thing while they're having their talk about the case that's going on. Mm -hmm. They just want to be together because they're in love. But speaking of, did we ever find out what William H. Macy needs the money for? I think it's because of serial numbers on the car. No, that had to do with him getting a loan against the cars because he needed money for something. And his plan was to get the deal with Wade to pay off that loan. Yeah, I don't think it ever comes up. So, yeah, it was pretty unclear. Let's speculate wildly. Yeah, I thought (laughs) that he wanted to, like, have his own parking garage or something. Am I, I, like, completely off like that? The deal he wanted the money from Wade for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was kind of unclear. So the way I thought it played out, Jerry wants money for to start a parking garage, start his own business, so and so. So he already went to Wade and was like, hey, can I get the money? Wade says no. And so he concocts this scheme like, I got it. 
I'll kidnap my wife and have Wade pay the ransom and then I'll have the money to make a parking garage. And but then Wade reconsiders the deal because like Jerry has some better numbers or something. And Wade thinks that like he's gonna get he and his business partner are gonna get the bulk of the money and Jerry's just gonna get a little fee. And that's what that scene was about. And so Jerry's like, Oh, well maybe I don't need this whole kidnapping thing to go down, but he can't get a hold of Carl, so it goes through just by itself so i think that's how it played out but i'm i'm could be completely wrong there no i think he did the deal with the car getting a loan because i think he got a three hundred and twenty thousand dollar loan against some cars on the lot which is why that guy keeps that guy keeps calling him asking about the serial numbers he can't read uh-huh. i think he already got that and he was going to use the parking lot deal to pay back that and have just some more money yeah. And he was also trying to get some quick cash with the kidnapping scam. But I don't okay. know. I think he just wanted the money to have the nest egg for his family. Mm-hmm. I think that both of those could be right. Specifically, the fact is that it, it it's, keeps it vague. But I would like to think that it's following on with what Greg's saying, because that would drive home the message of like how you approach your family. Because, again, if you look at Marge and Norm, they aren't exactly rich. It's not like a driving home point of like, oh, no, how are we going to make ends meet, Norm? It's just a we're not extravagant. We're working towards what we've got. And it would be interesting if the thing going on with Jerry was that he was trying to live above his means. Like, I want to be able to provide for my family. But in doing so, he sacrifices his family in the process. I think that would be more poetic. So I like that interpretation, but I think it's very open. So it could, it could be either one, because like you said that he absolutely wanted that parking, you know, the parking garage set up and that could have been just to pay off the other one, but it might've been part of his end goal too, because he certainly didn't seem like he liked living under his father-in-law's shadow. Yes. Yeah. That was probably like the he, whole, the real situation is he mm-hmm. wanted to get out from under him. Yeah. Yeah. I don't Which think so that he wanted to live above his means. Sorry to interrupt, but. Because he never at any, at any point goes to a fancy restaurant to actually like with his family or anything. Like the wife's at home cooking food the first night, the first time we meet her. And I'm assuming that's like a common thing. Cause like, Oh, it's for supper. No one has supper unless they do it like every day. Then it's dinner. That was a joke. Cause it's Midwestern anyway, <laughs> moving past that. And then him, Wade and oh, the other guy, mm, I don't know his name. Yeah. Like the Wade, accountant guy, the accountant boy. Business uh stan company. stan grossman yeah stan yeah grossman. stan grossman they go to a like a denny's or tim hortons to uh have their meeting about what they're gonna do do you know what a tim hortons is is that in canada do you know what it is it, it's like I a thought, dunkin donuts I thought it was a dun- donut yeah, dunkin yeah. Donuts. it's not like a diner it's, yeah. it's not but you can get no. the tim no. horton trays i thought those are collectible you're thinking of wayne's world <laughs> what I don't. Anyway, sorry to derail you. Continue. The only, the only thing I know about Tim Hortons is from How I Met Your Mother. Huh. Because Robin always brings up, oh, I'm going to Tim Hortons when they talk about Canada. So they go to a Denny's when they want to like have their big meeting. They're not going to any extravagant things. The only person doing that is Carl, who's going to get money, allegedly. Not Well, he gets more than you asked. Because you, you, sorry, tangent. Jerry is a scummy scumbag. Because yes. he, he yes. played the con man by saying it's only $80,000. And the second he <laughs> talks to Wade and goes, a million. Like, what the? F- Where did that come from? Yeah. He was going to rip them off. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> the thing he gets arrested in the end because you don't mess with the people who are hired guns. Not a good idea, Jerry. 
<laughs> and that kind of brings me into the next point is something else that this movie kind of touches on that we've already touched on is greed and mm-hmm. how not every criminal is like a mastermind with everything like plotted out and are super smart, but that greed makes people do some really stupid things. And uh, one of my favorite scenes that exemplified that was just when Carl comes back and he's like, okay, you know, here's the money. I got it for you. Here's for me. Let's just, let's just book it. And he's like, well, I want the car. And like you already said, Nick, he has so much money stashed away. This mm-hmm. car does not matter. And literally everything would have been fine with him. Yeah. But Look everything would have been. <laughs> I'm taking the car. <laughs> you should see the other guy. Yeah. And it's like he, he should have just let the car go for however much it costs, like 20 or 30 grand. And he would have been able to do it because of his greed. And yes, because he got shot in the face, he rejects it. And that leads directly to his death. It's like one of the dumbest things I've ever seen for a criminal to do. Like, well, I have all this money, but over this one car, which actually you saw with Wade too, because Wade's like, you know, I'm going to pay my daughter's ransom. And then he's like, oh, uh, well, how much can we whittle this down for? Yeah. Yeah. Like a million. (laughs) We'll see about half a million. <laughs> trying to negotiate over here. Exactly. And then, and and then he takes going. a gun to the drop, like he's just gonna go off and and murk the guy and save all of his money. Mm-hmm. Like that's it is definitely a thinking about money before thinking about gene sort of situation and uh he yep. did sort of pay for it. I'm not I saying nobody really cares about Gene in this movie. <laughs> uh, poor Jean. She has that like really intense scene when she's getting kidnapped and then she's just a, a body with a knapsack over her head for the rest of the movie. Literally a body. That was just yeah. a body double because they're not going to pay an actress to sit there with a <laughs> bag over your head. Yeah, like, I mean, like the, the actress, uh, Kristen Rudrud, she did a good job and all, but like, if I'm just guesstimating, that could be like maybe what, five days of recording? With a day of voiceover, maybe. Yeah, like that's, that's a that's a quick job. Yeah, which I, I think really also, nails nails the point home that just Jerry really doesn't care. Gene looked so much like Jerry, like Kristen Rudrud, Rudrud, Rudrud. Uh, I'm going with Rudrud. Rudrud. I I think Rudrud is more fun. Anyway, and William H Macy, they look like siblings. I think it's because they both have the same jawline. That's Minnesota for you. Yeah. But this is my first time seeing William H. Macy not in the show Shameless. Oh. Which Really? Yeah. Because I never watched any of his other films. And then I'm seeing him. First of all, so far, all of his characters are both like, I hate him, but he's acting really good. Because you hate the characters because they're not supposed to really be likable. No kidding. I, <laughs> his like accent is like so spot on that I'm like, Maybe he's from Minnesota and like his shameless like New York act or like not New York. Um, I don't know where the show takes place anymore for some reason. His uh like American with no accent, you know. Chicago? I think it is Chicago because it's always yeah. cold, but like it's not like Midwestern, <laughs> Midwestern. Yeah. And then his yeah, accent most of, of this is so like clean. I'm like, whoa, what are you doing there? Most of William H. Macy's roles in the 90s were like this sad sack kind of character that he took shameless type roles to get away from that because he was really getting typecast and he's really good at them, but he's like, I need to stretch my legs as an actor. Yeah. He kills it in both, but it was just, it was so weird for me to see like drunk, like falling over to 
anxious businessman. Yeah. He like never doormat. drinks once in the show. Mm-hmm. I really liked the deadpan humor. It was, it was very good. Just the situational, like they're carrying on a conversation played up a little bit as far as the Minnesotan accent goes, but like they just drive it home that, uh, hold on. I forgot. I forgot my train of thought. We'll come oh, back. So to you it. were with the little fella, right? Oh yeah. I was with the little fella mm-hmm. and he was kind of funny looking. Yeah. Real funny looking, funny looking how it's kind of in a general way. Funny looking. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's how you describe Steve Buscemi. <laughs> her voice. I like the, to believe they wrote face. that before they cast Steve Buscemi, but yeah, poor Steve Buscemi. Maybe they wrote it <laughs> yeah. with him in mind. They were extra mean about it. <laughs> before they even like, had him audition. But Marge, Frances McDormand, her performance was amazing. Because she that smile that and everything. Mm-hmm. Did she? Yeah, she yeah. won the Academy Award. She won Best year. Actress for this because she's damn good. It was very good. And just the whole time, because her face was all like still smiling. And it's like, I have seen people like that who have like, they don't have a mean bone in their body, but they're still getting their point across. And they just smile the whole time nicely. And inside they're like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. Those are the best scenes in the movie when she's interrogating someone or just, just asking them some questions. But then like she gets down to business and the mood shifts and you're like, yeah, Marge, get him. <laughs> Get him. Yeah. He doesn't know she what's starts coming. off so sweet. Like, uh, do you mind if I sit down? I'm carrying quite a load here. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Very disarming, but then yeah, gets gets into it. Yeah, I and love she's her. Super uh, competent. She like walks to the first crime scene and she immediately knows what happens. And she's like, "Oh, damn shame. He was a good one. Yeah. He's a looker." <laughs> <laughs> and then she like, moves on. Like, oh. looks like a nice enough guy. Yeah. Yeah. She compared to everybody else that you that we see in the movie she is so competent mm-hmm. and good at her job just by comparison it makes her even more like legendary and it doesn't play it up it just, it's not like the cinematography zooms in on the face as she gives a monologue no she just continues on her day and does what she does well and the audience is like oh she's a badass without ever having to draw attention to it which again i think is great on the writing end i think the first scene with lou really sets it up where like she's like almost teaching him during that scene. Um, he mm-hmm. talked about how the license plate was DLR. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, oh, overall, it was good, it was good work. But your cop work I, needs a little work because I think it's from a dealer. He's like, dealer, DLR. Oh! <laughs> it was quite cute. And he brought her a coffee. Oh. And then you're like, oh. It's freezing. <laughs> yeah. And when she looks in the car, sees the girl dead. She's like, oh, darn shame. And it looks like she's going to throw up. And you're like, Oh, is it because she saw that? And she's like, no, she's like a hardened police officer. She's just doing that because she's pregnant. She's pregnant. <laughs> just think I'm going to barf. Wow. Speaking of snow, apparently while they were shooting this, it was the second warmest winter in like a hundred years. Yeah, so they were having this. real trouble finding snow. So like Uh-oh. a lot of it was fake or they had to keep going farther north than they were planning to shoot to get the snow scenes that they needed. <laughs> so they, they were like never in Minnesota. Or they're just like way farther north from where farther they stay. Farther way north, yep. Oh, just almost Canadian Minnesota. <laughs> My favorite snow scene was definitely when Jerry leaves Wade's office after he the deal. He's like, you mm. get a finder's fee. He's like, fuck you. He leaves. <laughs> and um, Yeah, that's what like happened. A, exactly. There's a looming shot. <laughs> of, it with um, his eyes. <laughs> yes. There's a looming shot of the parking lot. And it just sits on it for like 30 seconds and all of a sudden Jerry starts walking to it. But it's such a cool shot where you see like he like pulled up for like closer, did a full or like and then decided to park in the middle of the parking lot anyway, even though there's no spot, no cars in the entire parking lot. And he's like, I'm just going to still park away. 
Yeah, it's just got that real wide shot, and you're walking all the way across the parking lot, lonely and defeated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many like wide shots of people walking solemnly in snow. Mm-hmm. William H Macy is really good at freaking out, like when he's um taking off the he's scraping the ice, scraping the ice off his windshield. He starts out, he's going, he's just doing, he starts going faster, and all of a sudden he just flips out and throws the. Throws a scraper. scraper on the ground. I forgot the word. Uh, you said scraping, and then I'm like, what do you What do you use to scrape stuff? Oh, a scraper. <laughs> oh, a squeegee. <laughs> and then the same thing happens when the um, Marge leaves the first time, and he uh, slams on the desk because he finds out that Shep left town. Shep Brownfoot is the mechanic who got him in touch with Carl and I think Dara. he got him in touch with Gare. Yeah. And then, but Gare brought Carl for some reason. Or is it the other way around? Carl, well, Carl seems more competent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Carl brought Gare, and that's why he was like, who's this? Because that wasn't part of the deal with uh, his uh, mechanic buddy. Because his mechanic uh, okay. buddy only vouched for Carl. Okay. But Carl I disagree. brought Gare. I think that Shep only vouched for Gare. Oh, that's what I thought. Oh. Because Gare is like the more confident criminal. Well, he just, just doesn't a, talk as much. Yeah. So, you know, you don't talk. You sound smarter than the guy who's just blabbing. That's true. But he's certainly not as level-headed, whereas no. Steve Buscemi might mouth off. Gare will still, like, he'll pull out a gun faster. Yeah, but, like, if it hadn't been for Carl wanting to uh, tango in Brainerd, it probably wouldn't have gotten caught so fast. It's true. Nope. Yep. Gare just wanted some pancakes. <laughs> also, the um, one thing I really liked was how the cinematography had everything off. Everything was just slightly... Like a good a good example of it's the statue, this Paul Bunyan statue, as you go into town. Everything just seems slightly not fantastical, but unnerving, really. And the only times where you're not unnerved is when we're focused with Marge and Norm. With everybody else, there's something going weird with everything with the uh, cinematography. Like the mm. lighting, for example, when the criminals are holed up in the hotel. All the lighting is like this yellowish, dingy, sickly colors which is contrasted with like kind of the muted whites and earth tones of the rest of the film. I don't know. I just really like that. Mm-hmm. Just a little thing. Um, Shep did vouch for Gare instead of Carl. Aha. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause he said, Grim. that's why he goes and finds Carl and he's like, don't ever do this. And he beats the stuff at him. Cause I got in vouch for you. Don't smirch my good name mm-hmm. as an ex. Ah, gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> um, I totally blanked because he said um, Gare's last name, Grimsrud, instead of just Gear. And I was like, oh, mm. I didn't vouch for Grimsrud. Practical effects. Wow. I did not expect to have such good blood work in this movie. First yeah. of all, the first time we see some blood, it isn't when Gene falls down the stairs. It's when Gare shoots the cop and it's just this nice little fountain out of his head. I like that a lot. <laughs> not the fact that a cop died. But I love practical effects. Horror movies should only have practical effects. Okay. That's just my little take there. Absolutely. But, ooh, yeah, it's so, so It's so just innocuous before that. It's just people's lives up in the north where it's very snowy and they're just living their lives like we've been talking about. And then just suddenly out of nowhere, bam, blood all over Steve Buscemi's face and his lap based on the fountain. It's so mm-hmm. jarring. Yeah. And I think the part where C. Buscemi is just like looking straight and he has like the blood splatter on only half his face is like when the movie really changes tones because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he just sits and realizes, well, shit. Who am I? When things with? get real and we got to introduce Margie, mm-hmm. superhero. 
I know Robbie hates superheroes, but uh, <laughs> hey, and we worked on Margie comes week. in to save the day. Yeah, <laughs> can I just say the sh- the part where um, Carl gets shot in the face is so good. I watched it in slow mo like twice. Just the way the effect just like happens, it almost looks like it peels it. That is some good fleshy Steve Buscemi jaw. Yeah, and his acting during that, his whole time, he like has his jaws clenched because he's trying to keep his cheek together as much as possible, but he's still that character who's going to talk and mouth off the whole time. It's real cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, when he has to, um, he puts like a napkin on it to soap up the blood as it like a makeshift. Oh, yeah. He oh. changes it. It's like, he pulls it off. Ooh, it's no, 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 no. <laughs> mm-hmm. He gets tuckered and dailed later by getting put in a wood chipper. Yep. 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 That's what we're calling it. One of the most memorable scenes this film. Yeah. That's what people remember. Yeah. I it's the chipper. Because they don't shy away from any of the gore either. It's just plainly put there yeah. as if it was, yeah. mon- again, that mundane thing. Gratuitous so much as it is. It's just what happened. Yeah. Going back to Caleb's we- introduction. Yeah, it's not based on a true story, but certain elements are based on real things they've read. And the wood chipper scene is from a new story that they read about. Mm-hmm. I think a husband put his wife in the wood chipper or maybe vice versa. I forget. But like that kind of thing happened. Yeah. So there, and they didn't like show it gratuitously like, Oh, check out. There's so much blood and getting close-ups. It's just kind of mm-hmm. like a wide shot of him just doing his business, yeah. <laughs> putting this guy in a wood chipper. Yeah. He's, he's not doing anything evil. He's just getting some work done. On the yard, you know. <laughs> the thing is like, like I said, this film does a really good job of casting everything realistically vice being like fantastical you don't have these criminals who are super geniuses iqs like 200 trying to manage all this you have two bumbling people who probably is like hmm, why would they turn to you know because a lot of criminals aren't actually genius masterminds that's not generally what happens but it makes for usually great television yeah usually you know if you're a well-adjusted and intelligent human being you don't want to eviscerate people and shoot them multiple times yeah, that type like of thing well, you don't. Uh, well, no. exactly. <laughs> uh, case in point. But no, the it's interesting because you could see this actually happening to people and, you know, these things happening because sometimes things are just unfair. Like poor Jean, she does nothing wrong in the film. From start to finish, she hasn't done a single thing wrong that would justify to the audience like, oh, well, you know, it softens the blow because she's not this great of a person. No, she seems like a really nice mother and devoted wife who gets kidnapped and then dies unceremoniously. And it really works with the themes of the movie that it just presents it as this happens. So even though they said it's based on a true story and it wasn't, in all reality, it very well could have been real. Like this is the type of stuff you would see happen in and a real life And that's how they get case. you. There's a couple little fun things in this movie I thought were quite comical. First, I like how the Midwest gets everything really late. Like they're like talking up the Sierra Sierra uh, was stopped being produced in 1993. This is 1997, but it's set place a little later. But yet, the Ford Sierra was not a big hit with people. The movie takes place in 1987. Yes, but the Ford Sierra was not a great car to begin with. And they're talking it up like it's this amazing machine with the clear coat, right? Yes. True coat. True coat. True coat. Well, that oxidation will get you. Mm-hmm. Apparently, that, was, that happened to Ethan Cohen, like, verbatim that whole interaction when he was trying to buy a car so it's like oh i'm writing this down this is great <laughs> he was uh as the movie credits him irate man 
Yes. Our irate <laughs> customer. <laughs> so I am not from this generation. Neither are any of you. But would they play hockey games without the score on back then? Because like it just shows a hockey game and there was no score on screen. It was just the hockey players playing. Yeah, you got to remember. And there was there was just no score. And I'm like, when we're, oh, I, I try to look this up. I want to know when scorecards were introduced to like sports on TV. You mean like as an on-screen graphic? Yeah. It was probably popped up every now and again when something happened. I'm just not used to it not being like they're constantly. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> do I know? Yeah. He used like to be different. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that Brian Regan bit about how books always have the title and what chapter you're on at the top. As if you're watching a movie, you're like, what am I watching? Oh. Oh yeah, it says the title right at the top <laughs> in every scene. I have to know what the score is at all times. The moment I fell in love with Marge was when she like talked to the officer, looks back at Lou and goes, I'd be very surprised if our suspect was from Brenner. And it was just like, uh, Brainerd. what? Brainerd. 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 Anyway, I, I, I put an E instead of an A. It's all right. I, yeah. I like saw it earlier when they like pass it. I'm like, should I write that name down? Nah, as he said it, I'm like, I should have written that name down, but I'm not going back. Nick's like, I will remember names. Clearly, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I got overconfident. And then it's just like, oh, Midwesterns are all chummy. Like the fact that the people who drove past the cops even slowed down at all. Mm. And I was like, hey, Midwestern, apparently, like, I think not that was a looky loose situation. Yes. Like, my friend's from the South, and he says, um, if you don't like, when you pass someone in a very small town in your car and you don't like stop to say hi, like while driving, it's rude. So at first I thought that's what they did in Minnesota. And then, uh, but also like, you know, they could see the cop being dragged by a dude and blood going down his face. Who knows? In that scenario, what would you guys do? Would you have slowed down at all and like made the full eye contact or no, nah. you know, you're, you're out on the indistinct california highways and you see someone get pulled over and you just think oh well that person's not gonna be watching out for me so I'd yeah i might talk about my business. driving by but i wouldn't slow down yeah I, yeah i want to know how it. they crashed the car because i'm assuming it's like some black ice situation i assume i see roads they were freaked out dude they saw murder also i i think it's just um a directorial choice but you don't see the like the lights shift sideways you just see the lights fade out and then he finds it later which I'm assuming they just didn't want to have like a car take a sharp turn while trying to film that. Because I thought it was like they went like below a little dip in the road. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Either way. It seemed like they went down and then disappeared. Yeah. Either way, though, it does make the scene more interesting because you're following Gare's perspective the entire time. You're like, oh, he's, he's on the chase. Run, little people, run. And <laughs> they, like, and their headlights disappearing. You're like, oh, they must be smart. They turned off their lights. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, are they genius? They just like. You know, yeah. Just turn it off and maybe pull off to the side at one point. Mm-hmm. But like, and then we see you that can't they can't turn off like, your tail lights. Yeah, but like, don't they under the car and go neutral and hopefully yeah. you can drag like a. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> you quick cover the car up in snow that is go. only a couple inches deep because it's the warmest summer in recorded, <laughs> recorded decades. They're geniuses. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, at least. Like, oh, they turn they turn the lights off so they can't be followed. That's that's a smart idea. And then you're like, oh no, they actually careened off. That's really sad. And then, yeah, uh, blam blam, which is 
That was unfortunate. I, I'm glad they cut away from that second shot. That was like, I thought they were going to make us watch it. And then I was really relieved. Like, oh, whew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like I said, it's thing. not gratuitous. It's no, just yeah. I just, very well, matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Well, it was the first time we had seen like the actual violence is when the police officer's head got turned into a fountain. And so I was still, you know, <laughs> that is what uh, happened. <laughs> I was sussing out the tone of the violence. Mm. I wrote down Gare is brutal when he like shot the girlfriend in the passenger seat. I know. I was like, damn, boy. Like up until that point, you could have seen this going like a home alone situation where the violence would be slapstick or comedic. Like you could see it like, yeah, where these two guys are just bumbling. They're going to get everything wrong and they're going to rescue her in the end, that type of thing. At least when I was first watching it, that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, yeah, I I can see where this is going. And then the guy's head gets blown off. And I was like, oh, oh, gotcha. (laughs) We're going for this. Gotcha. (laughs) Fellas, I don't think we've talked about him yet. But there's this character called Mr. Mora. And uh, Mr. Mora is my favorite part of this movie, I think. I just have in my notes, Mr. Mora MVP. <laughs> and I he love sort of that just like so summarizes the entire movie pretty well, yeah. I think. Like, if you were to tell anyone what this movie is about, you'd be like, okay, you can just watch this like 30 second scene. And that's pretty much what it's about. Ella here who was drinking, I guess, where I can get some action. I said, what do you mean? What do you think what I mean? Some lady action. Oh, well, what do you what mean? What do I look like? That's not my business. <laughs> this ain't that kind of place. You need more of an accent and redo that entire thing just for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he says, I, for a quick second, I thought that was Carl in the police hoodie because you couldn't see oh. his face. And I'm like, so you don't like slash his face at all. Then I realized I was sort of stupid, but like, I was like, wait. Is this Carl doing like some crazy thing? And it wasn't. Four dollars. Is that a lot to park overnight? Nineteen eighty-seven. Let me get a inflation calculator up was, while you explain. Because like four dollars. My dad growing up, but he grew up more in the seventies. So he'd buy a soda and a Reese's before he'd go on his um bike route for the newspaper for a quarter. So right. and then I'm thinking nowadays that would be like I don't know three fifty maybe. So that's a quarter. So four quarters is a dollar. That would be about, I don't know, $16 times that by four. That would be parking at, oh, quick maths, 16 times four would be, oh, I I didn't Uh, prepare for this. That'd be 64 there, Nikki. Yeah, 64. That's quite a bit of mola to um, park one night. So, Nick, while you were talking about that, I was consulting various inflation calculators, and it would seem that $4 in 1987 equals just about a little over $9 nowadays. So, I mean, the bottom line here is, yeah, it's not too bad, but airport parking lots are always super expensive. I'm kind of with Steve Buscemi on this one, because he was like... Are they at the airport? Yeah, he was... Right? He was at the airport, I thought. I thought it was just a parking garage. Could have been, but it, like, uh, the point is, if I'm going into a airport parking lot or any parking lot, and I go in and then I immediately turn right around, am I still going to get charged for just entering and holding up the line? You is shouldn't. That, is that $4? I think it, they will waive it based on how long, because it gives you a, a timestamp of when you entered the parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. 
it kind of depends on where you're at because I have definitely come in on an overseas flight and just rolled out, realized it was in the wrong place and came back in and had to pay again. Mm. Although they might just not have liked me, which is also a possibility because the guy did not look very happy. I think automated systems, I think they are a little bit more forgiving. The point is that guy that was talking to Steve Buscemi was smug and he knows it. He's being greedy, just like the Mm -hmm. theme of this movie. Yeah, right, right there with you, Robbie. Just another example of Just greedy people. Example. Yep, you didn't yep. think I had another example of your theme, but I do. Neither, I didn't Thank either. You, <laughs> you got you. Yep. I felt really bad um, being that this is in the past and we have our present knowledge. For the, the two hookers, when one of them says, go Bears, and I'm like, oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. Because they haven't won a Super Bowl since like 1986. <laughs> <laughs> so they were talking, about, talking their about their high school. High school yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, that's really funny. I like it. <laughs> like, yeah, it's true. They, ha- they haven't won since. I loved one little fun bit. First of all, they said, yeah, 142 times. Really? In That's the script. I looked up the script, wow. just typed in control F, yaw, 142 results. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. But also, Carl had driving gloves, and I thought that was a very fun little thing. Because I don't. Because it's cold. Yeah. Oh, was it because it's cold or because he didn't have Freeze. power steering in the Sierra? I assume because it was cold. Everyone was wearing gloves. Mm. Yeah. but Because I mean, we're just classier because he thinks he's reason. better than he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a funny looking guy, you know, in the general yeah. sense. Funny looking. <laughs> I just want to say once again, poor Scotty. I mean, I have in my notes, Scotty leaves a, having a burger at home, perfectly nice burger, half eaten to go to McDonald's with friends. But like, I can let that go. It's more about the friends sure. than going to McDonald's. He's so sidelined in this movie. And even it takes uh, Wade's business partner, whose name escapes me. Stan Grossman. Stan Grossman. Yeah, it takes Stan Grossman talking to Jerry like, hey, what about Scotty? And that's the first point where it seems like Jerry has thought about how Scotty factors into this. And he's just like, what the heck what do you mean? mean? Yeah. <laughs> what the heck? Do- oh, Scotty. And he goes to Scotty and he's like, it's going to be all right, bud. We're just going to, we got to play ball with him. And then he leaves. <laughs> yeah. Don't call the cops. <laughs> Which again is bookended nicely by the fact that, you know, at the very end, Marge and Norm are talking about their unborn baby going to be, you know, they're going to create a family. And so Scotty got the short end of the stick and hopefully whoever the baby is that comes out will have a better life kind of contrasted. So fellas, I have a question for you. Would you recommend this movie and under what circumstances? Hmm. I would definitely recommend. I really enjoyed it. Marge is so good. I just, I loved it so much. And it's very, it's very short for how much like story there is. Super like, short. Like there's a main plot, a couple of subplots, and then all comes together very nicely. I was surprised when I saw the runtime. Yeah. Like we don't meet Marge until like we're 50 minutes in, but it feels like it's been 20. Yeah. And just how homely like all the Minnesotans like act together. It's, it's such a nice little snippet of the camaraderie they have. <laughs> I would definitely recommend it's a nice little watch. There's a little bit of violence, so like probably not a date movie. Maybe she's into it. Maybe he's into it. Maybe they're into it. I don't discriminate. It being crime. <laughs> they're into crime. It's a nice crime date it. movie. Um, 
I want to recommend this movie, so I will say yes, but it, it just like in my own personal life, I can't see myself recommending this movie very often because mm-hmm. it sort of fits in like a it's sort of a true crime movie, but sort of not. I would say it's mostly about Marge, but and she's definitely the star of uh, of this one. Frances McDormand is masterful mm-hmm. as always. Loved her in Three Billboards. Mm hmm. Yeah, I need to see that for this. Uh, that was a good one. Anyway, so yeah, I'll say I recommend this movie. It, it's, a, it's a short little watch. It doesn't take up too much of your time. And at the end, it sort of leaves you to just ponder for a bit. I was right there with Marge when she said, I just don't get it. Why would you do this for just a little bit of money? That's what I was thinking. Like, I just don't get it. Is, is this based off of a true story? Is it not? Is theme of the movie. Greed doesn't pay. Yep. I would also recommend this movie. It is fantastically shot, fantastically written. It won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, fantastically acted. Frances McDormand got Best Actress. Again, the Coens are always fantastic filmmakers. They make engaging movies that are shot really fantastically and really good. So I would recommend it to anybody. Again, watch out a little bit of blood. It's rated R. Mm-hmm. You know what you're getting into with if you're movie. of age. But Bruce Campbell is in it, apparently. IMDb is telling me that he's the soap opera actor that Gare is watching. When Gare is watching TV and Steve Buscemi comes in, he's like, I got the money. You should see the other guy. Bruce Campbell. Dude, I thought that was, I was like, that sounds like Bruce Campbell, but I bet it's (laughs) not. I recognize that shit. That's crazy. So anyways, yeah. Full recommendation from me. I highly recommend this. It's nicely paced. It's very well written. And I enjoyed it. The acting and performances were wonderful across the board so i am very happy to recommend this to anyone who doesn't mind you know a little bit of gore so that was our discussion of fargo next week is my pick fellas next week we're gonna watch our second martin scorsese movie we're gonna watch a movie called hugo oh hmm, i have not watched that hugo it's a delightful movie about a kid who lives in a french train station oh yeah this is like a recent ish right like yes in the 2011 last okay Yeah, I know of it. I haven't seen it yet. I read the book. It'll be a lot of fun. So please feel free to watch that next week with us. And please follow us on all the social medias. We are Four Film Fellas on Facebook and Instagram. That's F-O-U-R Film Fellas. Please rate and give us five stars on wherever you're listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining along. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, fellas. Bye, fellas.